Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Did you hear that last show? Redesigning humans. That's what I want. I want to, I want to be one of the designers. That's the problem, folks. Who's going to decide? I would give every new person a critical faculty. And you know how useful that would be. Never mind, I'm more fragmented than usual. Today, free association is my downfall. Let's see, today is July the 14th, 2015. I think that's Bastille Day. I think so. You know, the French stormed the Bastille and had a revolution, and you know how that turned out. Uh, notes, notes, notes. Uh, I'm going to have to learn to focus. Uh, I have a note here about the, the notion that they're going to put a woman on our money. How about that? If you think that is, it isn't a contradiction or an irony, right? I think it's the $20 bill. They're going to put a woman on the $20 bill. I made a list the other day of all the women who deserve this honor. Uh, I think it would be mean to put Eleanor Roosevelt on there. But, you know, she did do the human rights thing at the UN. And that's the most universal. But, no, we're not universal here. We don't want to be universal. We want to be American it's American money, so it's got to be labor. That means it's Mother Jones, Mother Jones on the $20 bill. That's my vote. If you think different, you let me know, and I'll, I'll, I'll post the winners. Yes. Who goes on the $20 bill? Never mind. Last week, I began an attempt to reduce... The poet Sylvia Plath, just, I was going to reduce her to an ordinary, unhappy woman, you know. Just filled with all that ordinary pain and envy and human frailty. But, of course, she was a poet. Uh, now, <laughs> she was nothing, nothing uh, that we could call ordinary uh, Everything and nothing, all at once. You know how that goes, folks. I read bits of her diary about how she was so upset, you know. Uh, the then famous older poet Marion Moore criticized her poems, and she was in a, she was having a fit about that. Uh, now, 
I wanted to read that diary as it was leading up to her violent outbursts, her physical expressions of anger, of rage, yes. Ah, she haunts me. She didn't want me to do that. I wanted to paint her as a manifestation of the primal passions, you know, as a woman suffering from all the angst and the angry, outraged fury of 5,000 years of slavery and oppression suffered by all women. Now, that oppression goes so deep, he stopped me. <laughs> I could hear voices, said Virginia Woolf. She said, Don't be shrill. I was going to compare... Sylvia with Virginia, Virginia Woolf. She too had violent outbreaks in which she attacked her beloved husband, Leonard Woolf. Restraints were used at uh, one point. That means a straitjacket in those days. She was put away, you know, sent to a, I guess, I don't like the word asylum, but she had to be cared for. Uh, I mean, she was truly out of her mind. Now, Celia only suffered from electroshock treatments. You remember the way they punished her. Uh, but then, of course, the final blow was her husband's departure. She had the two small children and uh, Ted Hughes, the husband who later became the poet laureate of England. He went off to another woman, Olga something anyway. Olga, too, killed herself and her child, their child, uh, two years old, I think. Sylvia carefully set out food, uh, milk, bread, something, left it for her children there by their cribs before she put her head in the oven. Anyway, I am haunted by this poet. She's a permanent part of my psychic makeup. Uh, her martyrdom. I know that it isn't fashionable right now. Uh, hasn't been for quite a while. Feminism is being reconstructed. Women are in a different bind nowadays. <laughs> yes. Buy your own drinks, lady. Okay. Backlash is the inevitable result. We look at history. Swings back and forth. Someone said to me the other day that we were in post-feminist uh, society. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I said, I thought it was post-patriarchal society. She said, well, same thing anyway. Uh, she said it was boring and just to drop it. Uh, I asked her, what about the new woman's broken heart? She laughed. My own history is forever mired in those years when Sylvia Plath and uh, also Anne Sexton, when they crashed out, I knew it was uh, not going to be popular, not in tune with the times. Uh, last week I wanted to suggest that Sylvia had a right to break things, smash furniture, act like a mythic madwoman. That madwoman in the attic, you remember Charlotte Bronte.
put a first wife up in the attic, uh, locked up, mad as a hatter. <laughs> Actually, there's another book uh, called Wide Sargasso Sea about Charlotte Bronte's, uh, what is it, uh, madness that me in her bonnet, that woman in Jane Eyre who was supposed to be mad as a hatter and uh, a woman of color. Jean Rays decided that there was a story there and she wrote that story. Uh, nobody got it, I don't think. Um, but it's a good way, it's a good way to find a subject as to go back further and uh, rewrite it. There's been a little bit of that with Jane Austen lately, uh, you know, tucking in background of slavery where Jane Austen had not taken the time to do so, but we know that it was going on at the time. Wonderful rewrites, revisionist imperative. Uh, never mind uh, the madness. Yes, it was only a symptom, you know. I was one of the first, first uh, women feminists to say that men had their troubles too, God knows. Uh, human life is a crucible for us all. Four horsemen of the apocalypse waiting around the corner. Today, I'd give the prize, the uh, silver cup, gold cup, to children. Yes. Uh-huh. I saw a film that did a spin on the Somali refugee children. <clears throat> I recommend it. It's called The Good Lie. It's uh, quite a remarkable film, but it is kind of kind of the universal. Uh, you know, check out the UN. Uh, the world's children are definitely under threat, like a snake eating its own tail when people begin to turn on their children. Uh, I don't know. There's so many ways to grasp the significance of woman's anguish. I always include the children in her anguish. Uh, I mean, I knew, I knew all about it once. Uh, let's see, children in 1960 and 62. For me, 1966 was the worst year. Oh, well, 1977 was a bitch as well. I do know that Sylvia Plath is now a source of power. Her art has given us something. Oh, maybe she was a pagan sacrifice. Throw yourself on the fire. Worship me then. And what changed feminist philosophy then? That is something real. I noticed the other day someone grimaced, uh, winced when I used the words philosophy and feminist, you know, in the same breath. Mm -hmm. Philosophers are by definition guys. Anyway, all that did happen. And uh, I found today, of all things, in a little magazine published in June, mm-hmm, and uh, it's a young woman named Anne Beattie. She's not that young. B-E-A-T-T-I-E, Beattie. She writes, The book that changed my life. 
and Beatty has a new collection of short stories, The State We're In. Here's what she says. I wasn't looking for role models. I had a lot invested in thinking I was an outsider, hippie vanity. Did I conflate myself with Sylvia Plath? No. I didn't romanticize writers either. Plath didn't have thick skin. I understood, I understood uh, how, how she was angry. Uh, I understand she burned with distant brilliance. Poems directly addressing the person despised, question mark here, I guess she means uh, the men in question. I think that Sylvia was writing about the masculine principle. Her father died when she was eight, and I don't think he was the least bit uh, (laughs) mean. It was his existence that bothered Sylvia. Not just wearing your heart on your sleeve, writes this woman, Anne Beatty, she says. She was not just wearing her heart on her sleeve, but she was setting that sleeve on fire. She was playing for high stakes, as we now know. After struggling with depression for most of her adult life, Sylvia Plath killed herself on February the 11th, 1963. See, Anne Sexton, born 1928, five years older, lasted quite a bit longer. Think of her as a menopausal suicide. She said, Sexton said, that she was growing large around the middle, the middle like a spider. She thought that meant the end of her erotic life. So she checked out. Interesting, interesting theory that a woman can think of herself what only as an object of desire, and when that is done, she is done. Anyway, this young woman, Anne Beattie, goes on to say that the imagery in Ariel, the last collection of poems by Sylvia Plath, the imagery jumped from the page into my brain, and from there to my inherently less capable, colder fingertips. Her radical poems soared on their own updrafts. I got it right away. Those below should gather what cinders fell to earth. What's interesting about this uh, quote is that I found it in a magazine, AARP, <laughs> yes, the Organization for Retired Persons, yes, the, the Old Folks, the Old Folks magazine. Isn't that interesting that they would uh, include an article about Sylvia Plath? She would now be my age, my goodness, my goodness. Uh, that smoke, that smoke, that... She left, you know, when she set things on fire. That still hasn't cleared for me. Mm-hmm. There was a collection of women's poetry published back in that day. It was titled, No More Masks. I have come to realize at the age of 81 
that I have lived behind a mask almost all my life. When I was, well, when I was young, I took that mask off once or twice, and the punishment was severe. As my beloved Irish father would say, it was like poke in eye with sharp stick. Today, in the twilight of my life, I thank the gods, uh, not just for my survival, but uh, for the chaos and catastrophe of my times. Oh, if only, if only they could have lived, Sylvia and... Uh, and Sexton, and yet, and yet. I never know whether it's worth it, worth it, uh, have here. Well, I was going to read you Anne Sexton's The Truth the Dead Know, but first let me read you uh, an epigraph above, uh, above it. It's a letter of Franz Kafka's. Franz Kafka writes, The books we need are the kind that act upon us like a misfortune that make us suffer like the death of someone we love more than ourselves, that make us feel as though we were on the verge of suicide or lost in a forest remote from all human habitation. A book should serve as the axe for the frozen sea within us. That's a line that is a favorite of Jack Foley's, our Wednesday programmer. He loves that line. Uh, A book should serve as the axe for the frozen sea within us. Yes, upside the head. Be aware. (laughs) Yes, what is that? The um, uh, I think it's a car talk, yes. The dope slap, the dope slap, you know. Come to the party, kids. Uh, Let's see. I don't see why I don't have time to read Annie Sexton's The Truth the Dead Know. She dedicates it for my mother, born March 1902. Same as my mother. Died March 1959, and my father, born February 1900, died June 1959. It's interesting now. That means March, April, May, June. Just a few months after Anne Sexton's mother died, uh, her father, the husband, died. Now that is a clue. Uh, Anne Sexton writes, Gone, I say, and walk from church, refusing the stiff procession to the grave. Letting the dead ride alone in the hearse. It is June. I'm tired of being brave. We drive to the Cape. I cultivate myself where the sun gutters from the sky. Where the sea swings in like an iron gate and we touch. In another country, people die, my darling. The wind falls in like stones from the white-hearted water. And when we touch, we enter 
touch entirely. No one's alone. Men kill for this or for as much. And what of the dead? They lie without shoes in their stone boats. They are more like stone than the sea would be if it stopped. They refuse to be blessed. Throat, eye, and knuckle bone. It seems she wrote this after uh, her father's death in June. Both parents are gone at this time. It's very interesting to write about our all our dead dears. Uh, some people think that it's a bit morbid. <laughs> I dread that word closure. What nonsense. Uh, I'm a part of all that I have met and known, and I will keep it. I will keep it. Take it with me, yes. Maybe I can. Take it with me. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I think that Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton could have gone on living. Uh, I wish they had. But maybe, in a sense, they do. We all know that it's true. All that stuff about time. Because it Edna St. Vincent Millay said, read me, read me, do not let me die. I think that time, well, you know, Marcus Aurelius said that it didn't matter whether your time was long or short. You only lost the present moment. It's complicated. Martin Luther King said the important thing. He said he had been to the mountaintop. He was safe. The readiness is all, as Hamlet liked to say. It may not be so difficult uh, for some people to die. All I have these days is reflective thoughts. Ah, yes, the readiness is all. <laughs> Most nights I go for movies and music and memories. Ah, Movies as well as music bring back floods of memories. Uh, millions of associations. So strange. Starting to read a book. Uh, I, I put it down because it reminds me of too many other things. have to go write a little bit of my own book. Uh, never mind. Last night, I watched another one of those BBC delights. It's a 19th century story. Two magicians trying to bring back their dead wives. Well, there you go. <laughs> wow. I can't wait for Mary Shelley to show up. Oh, no, 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 no. That's another series. It's called Penny Dreadful. That one's got... <clears throat> oh, gosh. Mary Shelley and uh, uh, Dorian Gray and... Oh, gosh, Frankenstein and just about all the 19th century uh, monsters. <laughs> anyway, the literary darlings from, uh, well, let's call it Oscar Wilde's time. Anyway, the magicians in this new series are a real trip. This is something different. Uh, it's titled Jonathan Strange 
and Mr. Norrell, I repeat, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Now, this one, as I say, is something completely different. Uh, I suppose it's just fantasy. It's not serious. Uh, what is that? Uh, high comedy? Uh, these two magicians have opposing ideologies. Now, that's, that's the theme. Opposing ideologies, yes. Mr. Norrell is interested only in making magic respectable. Respectable. Bring respectable magic back to England. He hangs out with conservatives in Parliament. Uh, he even wins wars for them, sort of. Jonathan Strange... He's not like that. Uh, he helps out a few times with the uh, with the defense of the realm. But he's not a stuffed shirt, not like Mr. Norrell. Uh, he has a beautiful wife. He is a liberal, enlightened visionary. He's after the truth. Even, even if it means going deep into the past. He's searching for someone called... The Raven King, we know all about that, those of us who live in Celtic dreams of the past. Anyway, Mr. Norrell rejects the past because it doesn't belong to him, it doesn't suit his theories, and he'll have no truck with it. He is willing to, uh, well, no, Mr. Strange, of course, uh, is willing to follow the uh, devil if it will take him to... Uh, a new place to the other world. Now, the devil in this uh, show is a terrific, terrific character. Just the eyebrows are enough to fascinate me. Once in a while, he takes some of the, uh, I was going to say, living characters. He's visible to some, invisible to others, the devil. He takes the living characters to a ball. Some of them actually continue at the ball after they are dead. This ball goes on every night without end. Remind you of any fairy tales? It's exhausting to go to the party. Be all dressed up so beautiful. Uh, okay. Round and round they go. The, the uh, show's gorgeous. Toss in the mad King George the Third. A real historical character. Uh, then, a black servant who seems to be the only kind uh, person. Uh, he even stays kind when he's in the grip of the devil. Uh, devil gives him a, a sword with which to kill King George the Third, and uh, it. What is it? It doesn't work. Uh, I don't want to be a spoiler. I just love this cockeyed point of view. Uh, the future of English magic. Now, that is an ironic idea. Yes. And it's certainly worth the struggle. I'm willing to struggle for English magic. Uh, I was raised on it all the place. Anyway, the special effects, my favorite, were horses made of sand. <laughs> the... The fantasy here is elaborate and kind of breathtaking, just kind of beautiful, the way those old 19th century storybooks 
were. I love those. Remember Arthur Rackham's drawings, the the trees, the plants, all the uh, all the plants were alive. You know, they reached for you. Ah, uh, uh, hell is a nice place to visit, but those who live there uh, <laughs> do find it kind of gruesome. All the usual British actors are in this show. Once again, it's called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. There are even some new actors. They all look like they're from RADA, Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. One thing I know is that the future of English theater is never in doubt. The British Empire may be long, long gone, but it will live forever on stage, which reminds me, tonight you can see The Jewel in the Crown on KVIE, uh, returns to cable TV, uh, let's see, PBS, is it KVIE 2? I'm not sure, oh gosh. Oh, 6, 6, KVIE Channel 6 in Sacto, folks. Uh, it's a 14-part series about India, that jewel in the crown of Queen Victoria back in the day. That series was made in 1984. It's a historical drama. Nothing quite as good as that one has been on offer Tuesday night tonight. Uh, check it out, the jewel in the crown. I'll be back at the same time next week. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow.